You're listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. I'm Janine Strong, and today I'd like to welcome my guest, Jeremy Hammond. I've been admiring Jeremy's work for some time now, and I'm excited that he's agreed to have a conversation and share his investigative reporting. Jeremy Hammond is an independent journalist and political analyst. He's the publisher and editor of Foreign Policy Journal and author of several books, including Obstacle to Peace, The U.S. Role in the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. And he's also a writing coach. Jeremy's writings empower readers with the knowledge they need to see through state propaganda intended to manufacture consent for criminal government policies. By recognizing when we are being lied to and why, we can fight effectively for liberty, peace, and justice in order to create a better world for ourselves, our children, and future generations of humanity. And I would like to highly recommend that for those who are interested to get on his email list because his emails are very informative and they're one of uh, the few that I definitely read and I don't just delete. (laughs) Hi, Jeremy. How are you? Hi, good. Thanks. I'm glad you're on. Thank you. Um, Let's start with just kind of a little bit if you tell people about your background and why you, you know, why you got into the whole arena of of vaccine policy and vaccines. Yeah, well, I started doing independent journalism um, after 9-11. And so before the Iraq war had uh, been launched, I was writing about how the government was lying. and, And that was just kind of what got me into doing independent journalism down the road. Uh, my wife became pregnant in 2012, and so I started applying skills I'd learned over the years doing independent journalism to researching vaccines for myself and for my wife to be able to make informed choices. And so once I kind of went on that down down that rabbit hole, digging deeply into the medical literature, and once I had kind of gained that knowledge, I was doing it for myself, you know, for, for our, our family personally. But once I had that knowledge, I couldn't not share it with people. And so I started writing about the, the, the vaccine topic, mm-hmm. um, you know, despite knowing that this would place a big target on my back. Um, but it was just something I had to do. And it, it came to be so all consuming that, you know, I, I actually stopped publishing Foreign Policy Journal last year. Uh, I've just shifted my focus 100 percent. You know, as much as I'm passionate about international affairs and, and foreign policy issues, it's just this. This to me is just the biggest issue right now, and especially with the COVID nineteen pandemic and the lockdowns and their mass vaccination endgame. Um, it's just it, that's all I have time for. <laughs> so that's all I do now. I know it is all encompassing. You know, it just I'm I'm constantly amazed as to how how divisive this topic is, and I mean I, I after I got out of nursing school, I worked in a pediatric office, and I. Gave, I can't, I'm embarrassed to say it, honestly, but I gave vaccine shots. I didn't know any better, but I educated myself and I'm definitely, unless somebody can show me some unbiased studies of why we should vaccinate for anything, I, I don't. I don't see why we need to do that. My body is uh, my temple, my experiment, and you know I keep it healthy. I don't feel like I need to jab some foreign substance in me to keep me healthy. Right? Yeah, disease isn't caused by lack of vaccinations. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the first time I've heard that, and I like it. You, you know, and when I was growing up, I mean, I remember having these. Dis- I mean, luckily, I- I'm. I'm 71. So I didn't, I think I had polio and maybe uh, 
a smallpox, you know, maybe a tetanus shot now and then when I've, you know, gotten a big gouge on something rusty. But other than that, I'm lucky that I, you know, I, I didn't, didn't get involved in all of this as a kid. And, you know, I don't recall anybody growing up who had autism or ADHD or peanut allergies or asthma. Um, and I was talking to Dr. Stephanie Seneff, and she said the same thing. You know, that nobody had all of these chronic illnesses and issues that we have now. Yeah. And it, it does seem to be related. Um, I know she's, she focuses on glyphosate, which I think is a very important topic. But the other, I think the other aspect is um, uh, besides toxins and is vaccines. And I consider vaccines to be a toxin. Well, they certainly contain toxins. Um, you know, whether you're talking about flu shots that still contain you know, multi-dose vials of flu shots still contain mercury or the non-live, so-called non-live vaccines that contain contain aluminum adjuvant, another known neurotoxin. Mm-hmm. Both of these are known neurotoxins, uncontroversially. They both can cross the placental barrier, the blood-brain barrier. They both can accumulate in the brain, contrary to what the CDC claims, that they're you know readily eliminated from the body. In fact, they do accumulate. Um, and then there's cumulative exposures. It's not just they, they, they tend to talk about the amounts in a single vaccine, but of course, you know, they give multiple vaccines at once. Mm-hmm. So it become a, an acute exposure to, to aluminum, for example, example, when you get multiple aluminum can, containing vaccines at once. And then there's a cumulative exposures from, from all the doses that children receive these days. And, you know, um, I probably had more vaccines than you did growing up, but not as, not as many as my, my younger brothers did. Mm-hmm. Just they, they continually adding more vaccines to the schedule. It's crazy. Uh, it's, just, it's gotten it's gotten absurd. You know this idea that we just like we were created without a functioning immune system, such that we all require this medical intervention, this pharmaceutical intervention, starting on the first day of our lives with the hepatitis B vaccine, in order to, to obtain good health and, and to have functioning immune system. I mean, it was, if we have immune system, it was created. <laughs> It will do what it was designed to do as long as we, uh, you know, treat, like you mentioned, treat our body as a temple and, and give our, our body what it needs in order for the immune system to function. And then it will do its job. And it, it, this just isn't the approach of pharmaceutical medicine. And that's there just needs to be a fundamental paradigm shift where we do approach it that way. You know, like when was the last, you know, look at the CDC's recommendations on flu. They say that the, the, um, the, the, the flu shot is the quote unquote the best way. To protect against influenza illness, but they have no they have no scientific basis for that. I mean, where are all the studies comparing people who choose, you know, that their their method of choice for preventing influenza illness is to get an annual flu shot? Compare that with people who whose um, method of choice is to maintain a healthy lifestyle, maintain sufficiency of vitamin D, mm-hmm. um, and and other things, exercise, you know, um, maintaining a healthy weight. All these other things, you know, where are the studies comparing those two choices, those two lifestyle choices, flu shot versus just healthy lifestyle choices? There's no such studies. So the CDC has absolutely no basis to make this claim that the flu shot is the best way. Um, and we know, I mean, it, it's by and large a, a disease of vitamin D insufficiency mm-hmm. and deficiency. Um, this is uncontroversial. I mean, there's so many studies on that in the literature. Um, and it's the same thing with COVID-19. There's many, many studies showing that vitamin D insufficiency is is a risk factor. Right. A major risk factor for severe disease. 
Well, you know, Jeremy, I was listening to, who was it, Dr. Ryan Cole. He was giving a talk to Idaho legislators. And the one thing that he said that really stuck out for me that I didn't know, he said that by law, if there's a, uh, if there's a treatment for a disease, an illness, that a vaccine cannot be approved. It cannot be authorized for emergency use. I think he said approved, but uh, so it's authorized for emergency use? Correct. Okay. So that really struck me because I've been saying, why aren't, you know, why, why aren't people talking about vitamin D, C, zinc, Mercola, I was listening to him. He was talking about nebulized hydrogen peroxide and how you can nip any upper respiratory problem uh, in the bud right away if you do that. Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, all these things that work and nobody talks about them. But then I guess if you can't authorize a vaccine and make money on it, no wonder you're not going to talk about treatments. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's essentially um, essentially it. You know, they they have been downplaying any kinds of treatments, um, including just natural approaches. I mean, in, in addition to pharmaceutical products like you know ivermectin and, and hydroxychloroquine, like you mentioned, um, that you know hydroxychloroquine is so controversial in the media. But you know, there, there there's um, there's a website. I forget the the URL, but uh, it, it's an active meta analysis of studies. Showing that you know, is if it's given if you know in combination with zinc at the right time, um, it is it is effective. And there's so many there's so much data on that, and it's just they don't want to talk about it. So they downplay any any potential treatments because mass vaccination has been the end game of the lockdown measures from the start, and and that is one of, that is a criterion for um, uh, for for emergency use authorization, which they were pushing for early on. Is it, that's it's one of the things that if there's an effective treatment already available, product a product can't get emergency use authorization. So it has to be. That's one of the FDA's criterion is is it has to be. Uh, there's there's no no other available treatments. <laughs> and so it, there's a, this political there's, there's this political agenda that distorts, you know, um, the science distorts medical research, um, and you know, look at look at how um, just supplements, they have to have this all you look at any supplement you buy, and it has this little warning on it. Well, this these statements have not been approved by the FDA, no matter how basic and mm-hmm. you know, no, no matter how many studies there are in the medical literature, like saying, you know, like vitamin D, <laughs> again, right, right. For the perfect example, you know, that yes, vitamin D is absolutely essential for the functioning of your immune system. And if you if you're sufficient in vitamin D, that is protective against infections mm-hmm. but you can't say that because it's, you, you don't have fda approval why is it that only patent patented pharmaceutical drugs can have you know don't have to put that label uh, on their products isn't that interesting i know it's it's crazy to me it's, it's just absolutely crazy making so jeremy what is your hypothesis what's your understanding of what the agenda is the political agenda for for mass vaccination well, I think it's you know the the government people tend to there's this perception of the government as is you know like the FDA and the CDC is kind of these agencies that that are you know like regulatory agencies that oversee the vaccine industry to protect us from the from the industry. But this is just 
it's just not the case at all. I mean, the government is the vaccine industry. <laughs> um, That's an interesting statement. The government is the vaccine industry. I hope everybody hears that. Can you go into that a little bit more, please? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just as an example, um, you know, if if there was a free market in in the in the vaccine mm -hmm. uh, industry, um, I don't I don't know that vaccines would even still be around today. You know, because uh, back in the early 1980s, uh, vaccine manufacturers were actually being driven out of business due to vaccine injury lawsuits, particularly for the, the whole cell pertussis vaccine, the DTP vaccine, mm -hmm. uh, the teriotetanus whole cell pertussis combination shot. Right. Um, that was used in, in, in the U.S. at the time, uh, has since been discontinued in favor of the, of the acellular vaccine. But um, lots of injury lawsuits for that vaccine. Also, the to a lesser extent, the oral polio vaccine, which caused every case of um, every case of domestic polio since 1979 was actually caused by the vaccine, not the wild virus. Um, so there were these lawsuits, and this mm. threatened public policy because you know public policy was to maintain high vaccination rights. So they have mm. a policy goal. When the suppliers started, you know, facing um, you start really literally going out of business because of these injury lawsuits. Uh, this threatened the vaccine supply. It became unstable. The unstable vaccine supply threatened public policy goals. And so the government stepped in to protect its policy goals by granting the manufacturers broad legal immunity against vaccine injury, injury lawsuits. You know, it still amazes me that that actually happened. <laughs> because it just, I mean... To me, it doesn't, I mean, I understand it from the, the pharmaceutical point of view, but for the rest of us, it doesn't make any sense at all. And, and it, to me, it goes against what the republic and our judicial system and our legal system is all about. I, <sighs> yeah, well, it, it totally eliminates the key market incentive for pharmaceutical companies to develop safer and more effective means of disease prevention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, it, the at the time, and they had already been developing, uh, that's why we have the acellular pertussis vaccine, which is recognized as, as less reactogenic than, than the whole cell pertussis vaccine, which okay. was crude by comparison, according to um, one paper I read, that was their description, mm -hmm. that it was a crude vaccine. Um, and so, and that was, that was the reason that they developed the safer vaccine, was because, because of these lawsuits. Mm-hmm. But um, so that was kind of, but that was the last one. I mean, that was really the, since then, they haven't had that incentive to to address parental concerns and public concerns about vaccine safety. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in addition, in addition to the legal immunity that they that they benefit from, um, they, their products are mandated <laughs> by the state, by state governments. Why is that? That just that's so crazy to me. I, I must think differently than other people do because I really don't get it. Even with my allopathic medical background, I don't get it. <laughs> well, it, it's just it, there's so much corruption and in, in conflicts of interest within the government, and the government is so wedded to the industry, and they serve the industry. Mm. And, of course, all the actions they, they take, they, they couch them in, in language of, you know, that as though that their, their primary concern was public health. And they always use that term public health. Mm -hmm. right. um, but it's typically just a euphemism for whatever's in the financial interests of the, of the pharmaceutical industry. 
And so the entire medical establishment is corrupt to its core. And the interesting thing is, you know, this, if you talk about this, you know, in the mainstream discourse, and you talk of like corruption in the CDC, and it's, it's as though this is some kind of conspiracy theory or something. Um, but if you go into the medical literature, it's, it's not controversial at all. Right. I mean, there's, 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 it's a whole fields of research, you know, a whole field of research into just how um, bad most science is and, and, and all the corruption and conflicts of interest within uh, the scientific establishment, including the journals. The journals themselves are part of the problem. Um, and, and you know, editors of top journals like uh, the New England Journal of Medicine and the BMJ have, have publicly spoken about the problem and how the journals are part of the problem and, and um, how they've become laundering operations for bad pharma science and things like this. It's not controversial at all that this is the state of affairs. But it's it's as though in the public discourse, this is all taboo. You can't talk about it. There's no discussion of it whatsoever. There's this perception of the FDA and CDC is is looking after us and putting public health first. Um, and you know, the scientific community. We talk. They talk about the science as the you know, as <laughs> yes. it's, it's more of a religion. It's like a dogma to them. Like you, you have the expressions like I believe in the science right as though it's a faith <laughs> right or as it or is it set in stone too i mean it's always evolving and changing and growing as as new hypotheses are proven or disproven it's not a static thing right and it's not as though the medical establishment hasn't gotten things wrong before i mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know this it's like this perception of the cdc and the medical establishment itself is you know these infallible entities um, it is so ludicrous and really insulting to people's intelligence. I just it it blows my mind that people are really really accepting of the the way things are for one, but also just the the discourse about things that you can't even have a discussion. Oh, I know. If you dare to question things, you're going to be censored these days. Absolutely. Or I I mean I've tried to talk to some people and they're right away. Oh, that's conspiracy theory. And I'm like, no, I'm talking facts here data uh, how it, it's like if it doesn't if it doesn't um match whatever the mainstream narrative currently is it's a conspiracy theory right it, without any thought or I, I don't know i i guess i've i've always felt it was important to be able to hold opposing concepts at the same time and look at them and and not just brush them aside or or say, you know, that's wrong because I may be wrong. And I, I've always felt I need to be open to changing my opinions with new, new data, new facts. Right. Anyone who's, I mean, the, the message is you, you shouldn't consider other perspectives. <laughs> right, right. Which is absolutely like, well, ludicrous. <laughs> really? I thought, I thought that was the whole idea of, you know, being open-minded and, yeah. and not just coming to confirmation bias is to be open to considering other people's perspectives and, and trying to understand other points of view, and this is how we learn and grow. Right. Um, but this is literally the message from the mainstream media, from the government, is that you know you sh- there's perceptions out, per- perspectives out there that you should not consider. They're too dangerous, and, and you're too stupid to to be able to be exposed to that information and, and decide for yourself <laughs> what the truth is. So we're going to be um, your nanny. We're going to be your nanny, right? And, yeah. Yeah, and what what you should just avoid and not be exposed to. Uh, it's so insulting. It, it is. It really is. It's it's very insulting. Um, Jeremy, let's go back to polio vaccine for a moment, if we could, because I know 
that was my mother's argument. She used to get the influenza vaccine when, uh, when she was still alive. And I tried to talk her out of it. But I didn't have I didn't have the data at the time. I hadn't read uh, Suzanne Humphrey's book Dissolving Illusions, which, for everyone, I think that's like one of the best books if you want to understand the history of how vaccines developed and and why people were so sick and how you know how that changed with better nutrition and, and she goes into the industrial revolution and everything. But that is something that I I do hear even still. You know, well you know, the polio vaccine eradicated polio. Uh, how would you like to comment on that? Well, you know, there's, there's a question of the measles vaccine, for example, you know, it's a highly effective vaccine. There's no question about that. But if you look at the mortality from measles before the vaccine, it was already on the decline. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the measles vaccine came very late in the game in terms of the, of the overall decline of measles mortality. Okay. And it's, it was the same for this isn't true for polio, interestingly, but but for, in general, the you know, ninety um, percent of the decline in infectious disease mortality occurred uh, in the early half of the of the twentieth century before there were vaccines that could possibly help to explain it. Right. And this was all due to uh, increasing standard of living mm-hmm. and all the things that accompany increasing standard of living, including better nutrition. You know, just better hygiene practices, better sanitation, all of these things contributed to the decline in infectious disease mortality. And so, you know, there's this this whole, again, it comes down to the paradigm of vac- mass vaccination that, you know, as though our immune systems are somehow underdeveloped that, you know, God or, or evolution, however you want to look at it, you know, failed us and, and didn't create us with a functioning immune system that we need these interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know... There's another, there's another possible approach, you know, rather than, for example, with measles, rather than mass vaccinating every child when most children are not at significant risk of serious disease, what, you know, where, why didn't they put all, devote all those funding and, and, and studies to trying to figure out why is it that certain, why is it that a minority of children, a small number of children um, do develop complications from measles and do die from measles? What was, what's different about those children? Very good question. Figuring that out and then in developing targeted interventions mm-hmm. rather yeah. than this indiscriminate mass vaccination approach. Same thing with polio. Polio, interestingly, you know, really only um, whereas influenza, you know, we have a long history of, of influenza. Measles has been around for, you know, many, many ages. Polio kind of really just emerged in, in the late 1800s and then it, it became epidemic. You know, like we had these epidemics. Um mm-hmm. You know, these deadly epidemics in the early 1900s through the 40s and 50s. And that's really interesting. So why did it suddenly just appear in, in as this, you know, as this deadly virus? That's an excellent and, question. And when I describe it that way, um, I mean, most people didn't, didn't die from it. And, mo- and most people didn't get paralysis from it. It was fewer than 1% mm-hmm. who developed paralytic polio. Okay. Of course, only a small fraction of those died from it. But you know, the question is, why did it become so, how did it emerge as this, as this, you know, paralytic disease? It's, you know, this was kind of an interesting question of where did it even come from? And why did it become so, so epidemic in the U.S. and around the world and cause these, these illnesses? Do we have the answer to that? And I know I'm raising the question, um, 
not rhetorically, it's a legitimate question, mm, okay. but where, that's exactly okay. the thing. Where's all the research into answering that question? Mm-hmm. And so, and, and I'm just raising the question because um, my point is that this is where they should devote the research and the attention, right? You know, like with measles, again, why didn't they devote the, the energy and the, and the research to d- determining what was it that, with polio, why is it that a minority, a very small percentage of people develop paralysis when most people are infected and they're fine? In fact, most infections mm-hmm. were, were asymptomatic or, 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 or mild. But certain people, you know, had severe illness and developed paralysis and some died. Why? What was different? And what were the, what were the other causal factors in that? And you, they have this kind of approach of you, there's this virus or this bacteria and this causes the disease. And so we need to protect ourselves from this virus or this bacteria. And this is the whole approach. But this is a fallacy because, you know, look at SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 is a necessary but insufficient factor in the pathogenesis of COVID-19 disease. Because so, many people get infected with SARS-CoV-2 and they do not develop COVID-19. Yeah, well, right. Right. What's different? What's different about the people who develop severe disease and those who have asymptomatic infection? And, you know, in, in, in this case, there's there's a lot of data. We do understand that to a large extent. I mean, it's still kind of a big unknown. But, you know, we know vitamin D, again, is, is one example. Um, age has a lot to do with it. There's a lot of thoughts about why, for example, children are at such low risk from SARS-CoV-2. Even less mm-hmm. risk, you know, acknowledge less risk in the flu is a greater risk to children than SARS-CoV-2 is. Why is this? Um, there's lots of discussion in the literature about, you know, their strong innate immunity and, and the, the cellular immunity that children have in addition to the adaptive, you know, antibody immunity mm-hmm. that people develop. Mm-hmm. So people with asymptomatic or mild infections clear the virus. They clear the infection before they even develop antibodies. It's not all about antibodies. And this is a whole other um, aspect of you know the vaccine paradigm that is really myopic, where they you know the whole intention is to inject these this substance into your body to stimulate the production of antibodies, but yeah. antibodies are neither always sufficient nor even necessary for the development of immunity. Right. What happened to natural killer cells? I mean, right? Doesn't that isn't that supposed to come first? <laughs> right, which is exactly why people are able to clear the infection before their antibodies are even developed before they even amount an antibody response. So uh, what happens? So with a vaccine, you're developing antibodies and you're bypassing the natural process of, of natural killer cells. Wouldn't that be detrimental down the line? I, wouldn't a natural immunity of you know, getting exposed to whatever it is and then re, you know recovering or not even know you've got it, but you've got a pretty much a lifelong immunity it's my understanding and then you now they're talking what vaccine boosters every year and for every very quote unquote so-called variant i mean this is outrageous yeah that goes to this question of um that's another big flaw in the whole paradigm of of vaccination mass vaccination is the opportunity costs of vaccination so um typically natural immunity is significantly superior to right. the immunity you would get from a vaccine. Pertussis is an example. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier how they used to use the whole whole cell pertussis vaccine, mm-hmm. and now they're using the acellular pertussis vaccine. Well, it's acknowledged in the literature that, you know, children who were primed with the acellular pertussis vaccine, which 
has rapidly, quite rapidly waning immunity. I mean, they, they lose their immunity quite rapidly. Oh, I didn't know that. And this mm. is one of the reasons why, you know, countries that have switched to the acellular vaccine are now seeing outbreaks of pertussis. I mean, it's, it's really, um, and they're not, it's not associated with under vaccination. It's, it's mm-hmm. children who had been vaccinated who are getting pertussis. And um, it also, uh, with this vaccine, um, it's, you know, the vac- mass vaccination has put uh, evolutionary pressure on the bacteria so that now in the U.S. all the circulating strains lacked a, a key antigen component of the vaccine, a pro- protein called protactin. Mm, um, okay. And so it's essentially, you know, evolved to escape vaccine-conferred immunity. Um, mm-hmm. Although the, the vaccine, not that it that does escape entirely. I mean, the vaccine does still offer protection, but it, it's very short-lived. And also, it doesn't prevent transmission. This is unlike natural immunity, where in addition to the antibody response, you know, that Th2, the aluminum-containing vaccine, skews the immune system to this Th2, this antibody response, at the opportunity cost of loss of a, a lost, more balanced response that includes um, cellular immunity and, and mu- importantly, mucosal immunity. So this is really important for pre- preventing infection in the lungs. And since the vaccine doesn't do that, children who've been vaccinated, they can still become infected and, and they become, ace, you know, um, carriers and they can still spread uh, the bacteria to other children <laughs> or adults. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's an example of an opportunity cost by by preventing children from having acquired immunity naturally and instead you know you basically they have this artificial immunity um okay. you know in the long term there's costs to that and so so jeremy just just for clarity here for everyone it sounds to me like what you're saying is that if you've been vaccinated and you are exposed to whatever the vaccine was for in the future your your innate immune system it can't kick in well there's, there's a term for that in the literature it's called the uh, original antigenic sin it's not necessarily with respect to innate immune system um but also the adaptive immune system okay um, where once your body learns to you it's kind of pathogenic priming where your 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 body is trained to respond a certain way to a pathogen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's the purpose of vaccines is they want to to train your body to mount an, an a response. Right. But once once you train the immune system in one particular way, it kind of gets locked into that that response. So, for example, with uh, influenza vaccines, this is a good example. Okay. Um, people who whose immune systems were primed with a with a vaccine. You know, when the virus is constantly mutating and every year they have mm-hmm. put out different vaccines. Right. And so um, it, over time, the, the immunity becomes less and less protective. And the CDC mm-hmm. study has shown that. Okay. And so what happens is if your, your immune system was primed to respond X way to a pathogenic challenge, the next time it, it encounters a, a, a different variant of that pathogen, it's going to respond as though it was infected with the original variant. Right. Whereas, and there's, so there's an opportunity cost to that. Whereas if, you know, if the individual had been naive, 
or acquired the, the more robust cross-protective immunity of natural infection previously, they, they, have, they mount a more appropriate immune response mm-hmm. to that secondary infection or if it's, an, if it's a naive individual, that initial infection. Right. And isn't that partially because it, we're able to, uh, our bodies are able to generalize, whereas the vaccine is targeted to just one thing. <laughs> Thing's not the right word, but it's uh, my scientific word here, thing. Yeah. But, but your natural, the natural way is that your body can generalize. It can, even though maybe you had a different variant of the measles uh, when you were young and you're exposed to a different variant when you're older, your immune functions can generalize to that and protect you. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah, certainly. And this is a big concern, I think, with SARS-CoV-2 because, you know, the the vaccines are specifically designed to mount an antibody response to the spike protein of Mm -hmm. the virus Mm -hmm. and only the spike protein of the virus. But of course, there's other epitopes of the virus when you when you're infected that you know your immune system recognizes and mounts in a response to it's not only you know only develop antibodies to the spike protein you'll also develop um, immune responses to other parts of the virus and so you kind of it's it's a, a more complete and robust immunity um, and you also develop you know, immune memory, both T cell and B cell memory, so that if you ever encounter that pathogen again, whether it's the the same variant or a different variant of of that of that virus, um, your body is going to recognize that, right, and be able to mount the response to it. Whereas when they're just solely focused on the spike protein, if the spike, you know, I mean, most of the variants, you know, the so-called variants of concern that they're talking about, like from the UK. South Africa, there's one from Brazil. Okay. Um, you know, the when they talk about variants of concern, the concern is that it's the spike protein where these mutations are happening, mm. specifically okay. in the spike protein. Ah. And so if in time, you know, variants emerge that, are, you know, are what's called an escape variant, mm-hmm. escape mutant that are able to escape vaccine-conferred immunity, um, there, you know, therein it lies that danger of original antigenic sin, where people who were primed with the vaccine are now incapable of mounting an appropriate immune response to the new variants. Whereas this is much less likely if you've been infected naturally and you have natural immunity, due to the more, you know, the it's just intuitive that that if you mount an immune response to the whole virus as opposed to this um, artificially created one protein from the virus, the spike protein, which they create with the mRNA vaccines. It's they inject mRNA into your body, messenger RNA, which enters your cells and turns your cells into these factories that produce the spike protein. And that's how they work. And then your body will mount an immune response to, it doesn't recognize the, the, the spike protein as part of self. So it mounts an immune response to it. Um, and so you develop immune response to the spike protein, but that's just, again, that's just one part of the virus. Right. And there's, epitopes that are important for develop, developing a more robust, longer-lasting immunity that, that would be cross-protective. Right. On the same way we know people, you know, there's lots of studies indicating very strongly that people who have colds, when you're infected with a common cold that's mm-hmm. caused by common um, human coronaviruses, mm-hmm. which are in the same family as the, the SARS-CoV-2 right. virus, 
um, that is cross-protective. And so there's this kind of um, background immunity already. I mean, there was the initial assumption was that the entire human population was naive. And, you know, they, they called this a novel coronavirus. And, right. and it appears that, that that wasn't the case at all and that there's already a lot of background immunity due to cross-protective immunity from infections with common colds. Interesting. Well, I used to get colds a lot, so I guess I built up a lot of immunity. Well, and colds can be caused by a number of, lots. there's lots of different viruses that cause (laughs) common cold symptoms, but uh, coronaviruses are among them. In in fact, one estimate I read was up to 20% of common colds Mm -hmm. globally are caused by common human coronaviruses. Oh, interesting. Okay, that's an interesting fact. Now, let's talk about the mRNA for a moment, and then I, I want to really talk about uh, Dr. Paul Thomas, too. Yeah. Um, my concern, I mean, it seems like more and more doctors are voicing concern that this, because it's a synthetic genetic technology, and that it has the, well, I don't want to say will, but it could very likely alter our DNA. Um, And uh, maybe you can answer this question because my understanding is that because of this mRNA technology, once it's in your body, that's it. You can't get rid of it. It, It's it's in your body. But with a, we'll call it, say, a regular vaccine, that doesn't seem to be the case. Is that true? Yeah, well, there's a couple of different things here. So, of course, the the, you know, the advocates of mass vaccination, the, the industry and the government, their argument is this, that the mRNA, number one, doesn't enter the nucleus of the cells and therefore it can't uh, integrate with your DNA. Okay. Secondly, that the mRNA breaks down uh, and is just eliminated from your body after it serves its, its function of um, communicating to the cells, you know, how to create the spike protein. Mm-hmm. But there's a couple of questions related to that and, and you know some some um, scientific reasons to challenge some assumptions number one we don't know you know wh- how wh- I haven't seen any studies I have seen no data whatsoever um, where they've actually like said how long it takes for for the mRNA to break down because of course right. um, the whole reason that they encapsulate the mRNA and in, in this um, lipid um, I forget what they call it um, they, they, you know they, they have to actually encapsulate it yeah, it's like a lipid a nanosphere substance. or something. Or, yeah, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, lipid nanoparticle or something. Mm-hmm. And so um, the whole purpose of that is to prevent the mRNA from being immediately broken down before it has a chance to enter the cells and, and you know, generate spike proteins. And so, you know, how, how long does it stay in the body before it breaks down? Right. And does it break down? I haven't, I have never seen any data on that whatsoever. It's just a claim that they make. And I have never seen any studies describing that. Secondly, you know, even though it might be true that the mRNA doesn't enter the cell nucleus, this does not, it, it does not logically follow that, therefore, it cannot integrate with your DNA. And we know this because there's a process um, known as reverse transcriptase, mm-hmm. uh, reverse transcri- transcription, where mRNA is translated into DNA, and then it can incorporate into your own DNA. In fact, it, the, this is something that has happened throughout <laughs> the history of the human species, uh, 10% of our own DNA is viral in origin. Right, right. Um, so where does this process. happen then? If it, if, so if it doesn't have to go into the nucleus of the cell for this to happen, where does it still happen in the cell or on the outside of the cell? Or 
Well, this, this gets into areas of biology, but that is a bit beyond <laughs> okay. my, my knowledge. But I think it happens within the cell that it's um, reverse transcribed. Okay. And then I, I, I don't know exactly, but it, then my understanding, and, and in fact, there's a study, I, I could consult a study and maybe for more answers on that question. But um, there is a study I saw where they showed that SARS-CoV-2 itself integrates into DNA. So some people... Mm. Um, actually have DNA where the, the virus itself has incorporated itself into uh, into the DNA. Oh, interesting. And, and so it, that I haven't seen any validation that that was a preprint study. It was a, it hadn't yet been peer-reviewed. And mm -hmm. also, you know, of course, the authors had said, you know, we need there needs to be additional research to verify our findings and things. Um, but it wouldn't be altogether surprising if that was the case because, again, this is no, a, a known thing that viruses can incorporate themselves into, into our DNA and then you know, large proportion, you know, significant proportion of our DNA is is viral in origin. So that's surprising. And that is the process by which it occurs, is this reverse transcription process. Right. Well, I've listened to a lot of Dr. Zach Bush. I really like Zach. Um, but yeah, he says, right. you know, that it, without viruses, I mean, viruses have helped us to evolve as a species and they've been necessary yep. for us to evolve as a species. They're they're not like the the bad guy always. Right, it's not. It shouldn't be like a scary thought that this is the is, that this is the case that we have this you know uh, viral origin DNA in our bodies. It's it's we gain survival benefits from this. Right, and uh, Zach Bush is really brilliant in how he describes it. I know <laughs> this. Um, you know, essentially, viruses are these communicators. They they carry these messages and they communicate with our bodies, and they and they um, they can kind of upregulate our bodies with these survival benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know, it, it's it's not the virus is it's not the virus itself that actually kills people. It's it's pe people's own immune responses to the virus. And so there's another question, right? You know, in terms of that paradigm shift I'm talking about that that is need, so badly needed is why is it that some people have this dysfunctional immune response that it's the, their own body's immune response is this uncontrolled inflammatory response that kills them. You know what what is going on there, and I wonder whether it does have something to do with um, you know this Th2 skewed immune immunity, mm -hmm. um, which is largely the result of mass vaccination, particularly the, the you know the the aluminum adjuvanted so-called non-live vaccines skew right. the immune system towards this Th2 response mm -hmm. at the lost opportunity of a more balanced uh, immune response. So I think that could have something to do with it, uh, you know, in addition to things like vitamin D deficiency and you know, obviously obesity is a, a, has been identified as another major risk factor, cardiovascular disease, right? Uh, which actually brings cardiovascular disease. It brings me back to measles. So, for example, in addition to the opportunity costs, you know, re directly related to, you know, immunity to that particular virus, there's there's other benefits of, of you know, when you're infected, um, particularly during childhood, you know, childhood infections. Are associated with decreased risks of other diseases later in life. So, for example, measles has been associated. Measles infection during childhood is associated with a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease later in life. Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. And so, you know, maybe, maybe what if these people hadn't have been vaccinated for measles as children? Would they, you know, what, what are the chances that they might have survived um, COVID nineteen mm -hmm. if they didn't have cardiovascular disease? I mean, what's the association there? I mean, there's just, there's, you know, there is research like that out there. There was a major study on, on measles infection and cardiovascular disease is what I'm referring to. But, but you know, if we could take that further, you know, and think more long term and, and uh, take a more holistic approach and, and, and think about like, well, 
are we trading, you know, measles during childhood? And, and that's another thing before, before the vaccine, measles was constrained. It was kind of this natural herd immunity where measles was constrained to an age in which it was, you know, very low risk. Mm-hmm. Whereas infants were protected through maternal passive immunity. Right. And, and elderly people were protected because of they had had it as children and developed natural immunity and, and gained that lifelong immunity, whereas the vaccine-conferred immunity is not as robust, it's not as long-lasting, and they've essentially eliminated the um, uh, the natural boosting of, of immunity through repeat exposures. When I was young, we didn't, you know, we we didn't try to stop the spread of measles, measles, mumps, and chickenpox. I had all three of them. You you didn't t- try to stop the spread of that, and I think that there was a maybe a, a a subconscious or unconscious knowing that you know that it wasn't good to stop it that you let it go through you know we all, all right. uh, hopefully everybody had moms like me who took great care of you when you were sick and, <laughs> and you got to stay home from school and <laughs> right yeah like I, I had I never had measles because I'm sure I was vaccinated against it as a child um, and it probably wasn't around much when I was a kid. But, um, <laughs> You know, I did have chicken pox, and that's the way I saw it. It wasn't this thing that I was, like, definitely afraid of. It was, it was chicken pox. It was, right. like, no big deal. It was an excuse to be out of school for a little while. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's other benefits. I mean, it's been shown, you know, there's this whole idea, there's a whole the hygiene hypothesis, right, that, you know, we require these pathogenic challenges to develop our immune system, yes. so our immune, to train our immune system to be able to, for example, to identify you know, to be able to distinguish between self and non-self. Mm-hmm. We see all these chronic, you know, these epidemic rates of chronic illnesses, including autoimmune diseases. And the yes. idea that vaccines have nothing, you know, the idea that these pharmaceutical products that are specifically designed to permanently alter the functioning of our immune system has nothing to do with that <laughs> is totally ludicrous. You could not be more willfully ignorant and blind than to adopt that premise. I know. It's crazy. And with the, the, I guess we'll call them vaccinations, although I don't really think they're vaccinations that it's happening now. I think we're, we are, instead of letting the virus to let, letting the virus just spread through the population, do its thing and drop off and disappear, we're making it worse. Yeah, exactly. In the long term, I mean, we need to look at long term, um, what, what the benefits and risks are in, you know, again, with the measles, People have this idea of herd immunity today, and, and when they hear the herd, term herd immunity, they think of vaccines, right? Mm-hmm. And they think, well, that means that you know that the virus isn't—it's no, it, like it's eradicated; it doesn't spread. The term actually came originally; it was referring to natural herd immunity, which is, um, uh, you know, just a basic phenomenon that recognized in epidemiology. It's, it's so basic that it's built into the lockdowners' own models of, uh, of the epidemic waves of COVID nineteen, but. You know, there was this kind of natural herd immunity that wasn't, it didn't mean that the virus didn't circulate. I mean, by the time people were 18 years of age, practically the entire population had had experienced a measles infection at mm-hmm. some point during childhood. Um, but what it did was it just constrained it to an age, you know, number one, it did, it did, you know, it prevented outbreaks to an extent. I mean, outbreaks would still happen when, you know, when you when the naive population built up to a certain point, you know, outbreaks could occur again. Um, but there was kind of this natural herd immunity where infants were protected again, and then elderly people were protected. So those at highest risk were protected because it constrained the age of infection to basically school-aged children. Mm-hmm. 
And so that was protective. I mean, that was a form of natural herd immunity. It didn't mean the virus never circulated or that outbreaks didn't occur. Um, but when outbreaks happened, it particularly, you know, mainly affected children who were at low risk. And so you know, we've lost that. And now um, in the event of outbreaks, infants are actually at higher risk today because mothers who, who were vaccinated um, aren't as well able to confer um, maternal passive immunity to their infants mm-hmm. due to the inferiority of, of vaccine conferred immunity compared to mothers who experience infection as children and who are able to, um, you know, uh, confer a robust immunity to their infants prenatally mm-hmm. through the placenta and postnatally through breast milk. Uh, and that, that is protective. I and mean, that, that's what, you know, in, in the pre-vaccine era, that's what protected infants. Right. So now pulling that forward to, to the COVID, we're focused so on cases and to me, that's not the point. The point is uh, people who are hospitalized, people who are, are who have, have passed away, uh, people who are having um, serious side effects. Uh, cases, what, I mean, that doesn't seem to be the important thing, just like with measles or mumps or, or chickenpox, how many cases wasn't important, but it was, it was more the people who were having serious uh, issues. Right. Yeah, well, and the other thing about the case numbers that they've been reporting, you know, we're just constantly bombarded by these case numbers. Oh, God. They're really so meaningless, not only just because, you know, a lot of people who become infected are asymptomatic, they never actually develop the disease, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, they count any infection, you know, even the asymptomatic infections as COVID-19 cases, which is meaningless because COVID-19, I mean, you know, clinical disease is literally defined as the manifestation of symptoms. Right. <laughs> and so it, people who have asymptomatic infection do not have COVID-19 by definition. So there's that. But also, you know, they count any positive PCR test as a COVID, you know, any individual who receives a positive test, they count that as a COVID-19 case. But again, these tests don't even necessarily mean that the person has an infection. All, all a positive, first of all, there's a a certain rate of false positivity. I mean, you can get a false positive, you know, indicating that SARS-CoV-2 RNA is present when it's not present. So that's one thing. But even assuming that the test is correct in in finding, you know, in detecting the presence of um, SARS-CoV-2 RNA, the presence of RNA doesn't mean that there's an active infection necessarily. Mm -hmm. It could just mean that the person was exposed mounted an effective immune response, rapidly cleared the virus from their body. And now there's just these fragments, these, you know, non-viable, non-infectious fragments of, of, of the virus remaining in their system that the test is detecting. Right. And they're calling this COVID-19 cases, but they're not COVID-19 cases. So there's this systematic institutionalized fraud, um, scientific fraud that's been happening in terms of the case counts. Right. And if that's all that people hear, you know, if that's, it's, if that's it's the for only, fear. yeah. It's for fear. I mean, the scientists know this. I mean, I, I, I've been I mean, in the literature, I mean, it is, the papers, the research, the, the literature has discussed this problem with PCR tests from the beginning. <laughs> it's not like something that, but it amazingly, the media never got around to reporting it until I think it was October, if I'm not mistaken, when the, like the, New, the New York Times did a big article, which was the first um, that I came across, as I recall, that actually mentioned the fact that, you know, a positive PCR test might just mean that you have like these dead viral fragments. RNA fragments in your right. body. Right. And, and that the, the cycles, the, the cycles were too high and were creating right. false positives. E- exactly. Exactly. They have the, you know, the cycle, what's called the th- cycle threshold, meaning 
it's uh, they, they use it as a proxy measure of what's called viral load, where um, the more times um, you have to amplify, the more cycles you have to do to be able to reach the, the threshold for a positive test, you know, the, the less uh, RNA was present in the original sample. And so if you, if you require a few cycles, if there's a low cycle threshold, um, then that indicates that there was, you know, quite a lot of virus in the original sample. And so this does correlate with infectivity, but it's not, it's not a perfect correlation. So you could have, you know, a so-called high viral load based on a PCR test and, and yet, you know, not, still not have an infection. Right. You, you could have cleared the infection some time ago. Right. So it's not a perfect correlation. And, but, you know, even if it was, they were using, you know, they're looking at uh, using cycle thresholds, which are much too high, like as high as 40 when, when right. you know, anything really above 30 is really the likelihood of that, of a positive test indicating the you know, presence of a viable virus at a th- cycle threshold above 30 is really, is really low. And they were using like 35 and 40 mm-hmm. for these cycle thresholds. And so, you know, it's just, it was inevitable that they were counting people as COVID-19 19 cases who didn't even have an infection. Right. And you think, it begs the question. So, uh, in fact, I heard even it shouldn't be above twenty-seven. So, if this, if they're if they're running the tests, uh, the cycle thresholds at thirty-five, forty, why were they doing that? <laughs> you think they'd know that that does not oh, create an accurate test? Again, they they know. I mean, they know this. They knew this. I, I really it blows my mind that this was even happening. I mean, in the literature, you know. Um, I was I was reading studies probably back in March, April, mm-hmm. you know, talking about how positive test doesn't necessarily mean that that there's an infection. Um, but you know, the fact that the this never became like public knowledge, or, or uh, mm-hmm. not even public knowledge, but like even mentioned in the public, you know, in, in the mainstream discourse, and for you know, until the fall. I mean, it's so ludicrous. Um, it just it just goes to show like there's. It's willful deception, right? Because the science, the scientific community knew this from the start, hmm. and yet how? And yet, you know, I imagine, you know, if I was a scientist, I'm just imagine, I'm trying to put myself in in their shoes. Okay, you know, if I was in this field, and I and I, you know, I was aware of how PCR tests work, and I was aware that you know the the false positivity and all this, and and I was witnessing the the mainstream media report on this and report you know and in watching the 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 public health establishment count any positive test as a covid-19 case <laughs> without without any clinical symptoms mm-hmm. you know if i was watching that you know I, my conscience would compel me to speak out and say this is wrong this is unscientific this One is would fraud hope. One would and hope. yet the, the scientific community they again they know this and yet they've been silent yep. for the most part. I mean, there are certain individuals that have been speaking out from the beginning, but like, it's just the fact that it's, it's just like, it's just this accepted like, as though this behavior is okay. And mm-hmm. the, the, the silence from the scientific community, it really speaks volumes about just how messed up, just how corrupt the scientific medical establishment is that it, people are afraid to speak out. And how date, right. You you just said, and how dangerous because, you know, a lot of these doctors and scientists are risking their their livelihoods, their risk, you know, their funding, their their safety. They're being threatened by speaking out. It's outrageous. 
Yeah, and, and we see this, you know, with scientists who have spoken out. For example, the scientists who, you know, who have spoken out against the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. You know, Sandra Gupta from yep. Oxford and um, Jay Bhattacharya and, and Martin Koldorf and um, Scott Atlas. You know, the, the scientists who, who speak out against these policies, even they are facing censorship in, in um, you know, this is all these ad hominem attacks and, um, yeah, the ridicule. See, that's the other thing the, the that ridicule. really ir- irritates me is that when they try to discredit people personally, like they'll try right. to dig up something. Who was it the other day? Somebody, they didn't want to listen to something Sherry Tenpenny, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny said, because they said she used to belong to the John Birch Society or something. And I'm like, well, I don't agree with the John Birch Society, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to listen to her, her medical right. expertise. What's wrong with you? I just... It's irrelevant. Exactly. Yeah, this is the nature of the public. And so it's understandable why even, you know, why academics and scientists would be hesitant to speak their minds and be honest with Mm -hmm. people because that's just, it's become the culture. It's just this culture of deception and corruption. And anyone who's honest enough to to try to speak the truth is is attacked. Their their careers are put on the line, you know. Which maybe is a good segue to Paul Thomas. Yeah, um, that's yeah. Because I do. <laughs> I really. If you have time, I really want to talk a little bit about that. Even though we've we've been on for a while now, but I think it's really important because, first of all, him you know losing uh, losing or his license or having it. Um, suspended, but also that there's finally a study that that really deals with vaccinated, partially va- fully vaccinated, partially vaccinated, and unvaccinated children. And you've put so much time and energy into looking into this. I'd love you to speak about it. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, the study was published November 22nd, so several months ago. Mm-hmm. And it, it was the Dr. Paul Thomas, who is a pediatrician out in Portland, Oregon, um, who Oregon. within 11, <laughs> within 11 days. What did I say? <laughs> oh, you said Oregon. I, I'm from Oregon. So I, I oh. we just we always um, have to correct people when they say Oregon. It's Oregon. <laughs> Oregon. Oh, apologies. <laughs> Sorry, um, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> No, no problem. So within 11 days of that study being published, uh, the, the Oregon, Oregon Medical Board suspended his license. They issued an emergency order suspending his license. Now, what the study showed, um, using data from his clinic that he got institutional review board approval to, to, to use for research and publication mm-hmm. um, using the de-identified data, that study showed that they compared rates of chronic illnesses in children who had been variably vaccinated and children who had never received any vaccines. Children, uh, the entire study population was children born into his practice. Um, there were few, if any, children who actually received the full um, CDC schedule because just due to the nature of um, his practice and his approach, where he essentially, he, he, you know, he tells people, this is the CDC's recommendations. This is what the, the CDC wants you to do. Um, here's what the package insurance say. And he gives them additional information um, and he discussing the benefits and the risks, taking into account individualized things like family medical history, you know, history of autoimmune disease, mm-hmm. things like this, <clears throat> and informs parents so that they can make their own informed choice. Um, and so typically he, he, you know, 
parents that come to him, first of all, he gets parents to come to him specifically because they don't want to follow the CDC schedule. Right. And if they go to other practices, um, they're going to be forced to do that and potentially even come I mean, he gets parents who are kicked out of other practices precisely because they, they don't want to strictly comply with the schedule, the CDC wow. schedule. That's outrageous. And so, you know, he does just, he, you know, he kind of gets the disproportionate amount of parents who, who choose not to strictly follow that schedule um, in his practice. Understandable. So it wasn't, it was not, you know, parents are calling for a, uh, a, a study comparing health outcomes between children who are fully vaccinated according to the CDC schedule and completely unvaccinated children. This was not that study, but what it does show is that the children who were variably vaccinated, so that, you know, it, <clears throat> children who um, had been vaccinated to one extent or another, maybe not in strict accordance with uh, the CDC schedule, but vaccinated, um, compared mm-hmm. to children who never received any vaccine, uh, you know, across a broad range of health outcomes, the unvaccinated children had much lower incidence of both of diagnosis and of office visits for these outcomes. Mm-hmm. And this was actually a new measure that they had developed for this study, which they called um, relative incidence of office visits. Which ah, is, okay. is a more statistically powerful measure and gives more information, whereas uh, unlike the, the usual, you know, um, odds of, excuse me, odds of incidence or uh, um, incidence of diagnosis, which is just binary, yes, no, do they have a diagnosis or not? Uh, relative incidence of office visits gives more information. It, it speaks to the severity sure. mm-hmm. of, of the illness. So not, not do they have it, but not all only do they have it, but also how severe is it? So it's kind of, it's a, just a better measure. It's a, a more powerful and, and it gives more information. It's more statistically powerful and gives more information. Sure. Mm-hmm. So they developed this measure for this study, um, and they showed that yeah, children had much lower incidence. Um, and in fact, the unvaccinated is one example. Unvaccinated kids had there was there were zero patients in this practice who were unvaccinated and had ADHD. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Which was yeah very interesting. But even across the total um, study cohort, uh, the the rate of ADHD was significantly lower than the CDC's estimate nationally. Same thing with autism, um, although there were too few patients with autism in his practice to be able to conduct any kind of, you know, statistically meaningful analysis. They didn't do that. Mm -hmm. They did compare the rate in his clinic, in his practice of autism, and it's a fifth. A fifth? A fifth, uh, the the rate in in his practice compared to the national um, rate. What about things like um, asthma and allergies? Less incidence, yeah. They, they looked at allergies, yeah, asthma, um, allergic rhinitis. They looked at uh, uh, ear infections, um, other infections, meaning, mm-hmm. uh, I think, with, with specifically meaning, you know, inf- infections for which there aren't vaccines intended to prevent. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a broad range of, of different illnesses and chronic illnesses that, uh, you know, that, that just parents are concerned about, parents have associated with vaccines parents are concerned about vaccines potentially contributing to to these um, illnesses disorders diseases the main point the main um, conclusion from the study is that the main conclusion we can draw from from the data is that not not only that the unvaccinated children are not less healthy than the vaccinated children which Mm -hmm. of course is the medical board's um, accusation was that Dr. Paul represents a threat to public health because he's not vaccinating children. But not only are they not, you know, un- unhealthier than vaccinated children, but they appear to be far healthier. 
Wow, what a surprise. <laughs> yeah, it's not a surprise to those of us who, you know, are well read in this in this area and, and right. do our own research and think for ourselves. But certainly and this is the big thing because you know, they coming back to Dr. Paul and the suspension order, the the reason they have this false pretext, and it's a demonstrably false pretext. You know, they, they're accusing him of being a threat to public health. Well, he, they had actually requested that he produce peer-reviewed data to support his approach to vaccination. I suspect that they thought that would be an insurmountable obstacle, a hoop that he could not possibly jump through. <laughs> and yet he did, and he produced the data, and he published the study, and then they ignored it. <laughs> Well, they ignored, <laughs> they ignored the scientific evidence and held an emergency meeting to suspend his license on the grounds that, you know, his approach is putting children at risk when clearly the data show that those children are healthier. And are you surprised? <laughs> no, of course not. They, they completely ignore the scientific evidence because their, their, their approach is dogmatic. And so um, but they couldn't very well come out and say, well, you know, it's unacceptable to us. It's intolerable that Dr. Paul is practicing informed consent in his clinic. They couldn't say that. So they had to come up with a pretext. Mm. And so the pretext was that they accused him of, of bullying parents into accepting his his alternative vaccine schedule. Because of people who aren't familiar with Dr. Paul Thomas, he's also the author. He's a nationally renowned physician because he's author of uh, the book, The Vaccine Friendly Plan. Um, right. with Dr. Jennifer Margulis. Yes, and Jennifer's been on the podcast. We had a great conversation. Excellent. It's so he's, he's known for that. And so this is what they're referring to when they talk about Dr. Paul's uh, alternative schedule. And so they're, he's, they're accusing him of pressuring parents to accept this alternative schedule as opposed to the CDC schedule. Mm -hmm. But this is demonstrably untrue. It's, it's a demonstrably false pretext because, number one, it just shows that the Oregon Medical Board doesn't even understand the concept and the whole approach in his clinic, Integrative Pediatrics, which is individualized care and individualized risk-benefit analysis and respect for informed consent. What a concept. <clears throat> yeah, and, and this is demonstrable even in, in, the, in the suspension order itself where they're accusing him of pressuring parents to accept his alternative schedule. Well, the schedule presented in the book is just one example, right? It's not like you should follow this he, he does not advocate a one-size-fits-all approach alternative to the CDC's one-size-fits-all approach. That, that, that's anathema to the whole concept. The Oregon Medical Board clearly doesn't even, can't even comprehend that. Like, they can't wrap their minds around that concept. They're so myopic and, and ignorant. And so this is clearly indicated where, like, they're accusing him, you know, they, they, they say, well, such and such patient wasn't vaccinated for pertussis. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even though, or tetanus, even, even though, uh, in fact, in, in the vaccine-friendly plan, that's one of the vaccines that he's that is included on, on his alternative schedule. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so clearly, you know, if he was trying to pressure people to accept his alternative schedule, well, they would be getting the, the DTaP vaccine because that's one of the ones that he that's included in his alternative schedule. So their, their accusations don't even make sense and they're self-contradicted even on their own terms. Interesting. And, um, and, and that's an example I brought up tetanus because they accused one of the accusations was um, that deliberately, this is an example of their, how they're deliberately deceptive because they accused, they, they said they, they made it sound as though there was a boy who had gotten tetanus. Um, and in fact, the CDC had done a report about this. Okay. 
in one of his journals. Um, the boy had gotten tetanus, uh, and they accused Dr. Paul of acting irresponsibly by, by not vaccinating this boy for tetanus. And they made it sound as though the boy was not vaccinated because he was Dr. Paul's patient. In fact, Dr. Paul never saw that boy until he was discharged from after he was discharged from the <laughs> hospital. And the reason that that he he became Dr. Paul's patient was because when the parents were at the hospital, the parents had you know, been very firm about not vaccinating this boy. It was just okay. they were against vaccinating vaccinations. And according to the CDC's report, they did accept um the first dose of, of, of tetanus vaccine, the DTAP was supposed to be two doses for the whole regimen, but uh, they accepted the, a, a vaccine at the hospital. They refused the second dose and the hospital would not allow them to discharge the boy until they had a family, do- a family doctor, a pediatrician for their son. Ah, okay. They called around. They could not find another physician who would accept them into their practice because of their choice not to vaccinate the boy. <laughs> Jeez. That's why they called Dr. Paul in the first place. And of course, Dr. Paul, being who he is, mm-hmm. said yes mm-hmm. and accepted the boy into his practice. He never, again, he never saw the boy until afterward. And yet they're, you know, they're using this as an example of how he put this boy at risk. And but the thing is the, the other doctors at the hospital also could not persuade this, these parents to administer the second dose of, of the DTAP vaccine. Mm-hmm. But their license weren't suspended. <laughs> <laughs> but you know they go after Paul for this because you know as you know as like he's guilty of committing the crime of not forcing these parents to, to get this shot for the for their son. I mean this really is the message of of the suspension order. The, the medical board's message is to other doctors: you'd better bully your patients into accepting the CDC schedule, or else. You risk losing your license. If you practice informed consent, then you will be risking your medical career. That is the message that the medical board sent to other physicians across the state wow. with their suspension of Dr. Paul Thomas. Uh, that really is outrageous. It's just, uh, it's fascist. <laughs> I don't yeah. Know. It's, it's awful. Before we wrap up, I would like to... Um, recommend something to the listeners that it's actually it's a book that I I don't have anymore because I loaned it out and uh, never got back. It's Miller's Review of Critical Vaccine Studies, 400 Important Scientific Papers Summarized for Parents and Researchers. And it sounds really dry, but I'll tell you, it was my nighttime reading <laughs> for uh, until I finished the book and I could barely put it down. It was fascinating. And it really gives you, um, I don't know, I don't know if you've read it, but it really gives you an understanding of, uh, like he goes into a lot of studies that were never published because they didn't, they didn't end up saying what the pharmaceutical company wanted them to say. So they just buried it, and he brings out all those studies and and summarizes them, and it's it's really quite fascinating, and you really learn a lot. Yeah, I haven't read the book. I'm familiar with um, Miller, Neil Z. Miller, right? Uh, and I've read, read a number, you know, quite a lot of his studies that he's he's been a author or co-author of. I've communicated with him, um, so I am mm-hmm. familiar with with his work. Uh, I haven't read the book. Mm, okay. I highly recommend that for people who yeah. want to educate themselves. So, Jeremy, is there anything you'd like to wrap up with um, before we end? This has really been 
it's been a great conversation from my perspective. I've really enjoyed it. And I, I think it's, we've covered a lot of ground and I think we've really um, gotten into the meat of quite a few topics that are important today. Yeah, I think this, the final message I'd like to deliver is, you know, just the need to, for respect for informed consent um, because there is a war against our, this fundamental human right mm-hmm. and there is a threat to our health and to our liberty from the political establishment. Um, and of course, we're always labeled as, you know, there's this label that anti-vaxxer, anti-vaccine. Oh, the thing is, I, I'm not opposed to vaccines. I mean, it's in certain, for certain individuals in certain circumstances, vaccination might make sense. It's just that that has to be an individual choice. Right. And it has to be an informed choice. And you cannot make an informed choice. Inf- informed choice cannot happen in the presence of coercion. And this is the problem. Right. This is why I've shifted my focus entirely from um, foreign policy and economics and other issues to the vaccine issue. And now with COVID-19 pandemic and, and the mass vaccination endgame of the lockdowns um, to this topic because it is such a threat. And it's just it's, it's closer to home for me as because I'm a father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have to uh, really shift my my energies to protecting myself and my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why I've, I've made that shift in my in the focus of my of my work. So I, I guess that's really the the takeaway message is that it's not about being pro or anti-vaccine. This whole paradigm, this whole framework for discussion, is it's a false dichotomy. It's what it's really about is you're either pro informed consent or anti informed consent. And uh, I'm I'm pro informed consent, and that's what I'm fighting for. I'm fighting for fundamental human rights. Um, and the, the, the so-called, you know, the self-described pro-vaxxers out there, according to their own criteria, um, are anti-informed consent. And so we just need to change the, the framework for discussion here and, uh, uh, and affect the, the paradigm shift required for our children to be healthy and uh, to make sure that, you know, there's a brighter future for, for humankind. Mm-hmm. Well said. And I think that, you know, those who are, self-describe as pro-vaccine. The problem with informed consent for them is that I think if people are really well-informed and understand all of the possible ramifications, there would probably be a lot less vaccines handed out. Absolutely. They wouldn't need to resort to um, to coercion if you know under a free market under free market conditions that there was just high demand for these products. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, for one, again, these products, <laughs> they have legal immunity. And if it wasn't for that, the vaccine industry would even be at today. They have the whole political establishment recommending their products. And not only that, but states mandating their products um, with increasing moves to eliminate so-called non-medical exemptions. Mm-hmm. And in California, even if effectively eliminating medical exemptions, other than exemptions specifically for uh, CDC defined contraindications, which are way too narrowly defined. Right. Don't take into account things like family history of um, things like this. And so the you know there's the view of Dr. Richard Pan that when doctors write medical medical exemptions for vaccinations, they are not engaged in the practice of medicine, but fulfilling an administrative function for the state. Hmm. Interesting. That's his view. He stated he stated that in a journal article. Hmm. Those aren't my words. That's straight from Richard Penn. That's his perception. This is highly dangerous. He's a totalitarian. Wow. And, uh, and people who think the way he does are dangerous. 
Um, they are a threat to us and our our health and our freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the, the 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 challenge that we're confronted with to to face this threat of totalitarian governance um, and make sure that the patient doctor patient relationship is respected and that our rights are respected. Well, you know, Jeremy, I've often said to people, look, if you want to get vaccinated, go ahead. Why do I need to then? If you're protected, what do you care if I do or not? Or uh, I don't wear a mask. You know, if you want to wear a mask, go ahead. If you think it's protecting you, but I don't need to wear a mask and I don't think they protect me and it's not protecting you. So I'm not wearing one. But if you think it's working, why do you care if I do or not? Right. You know, instead of forcing, you know, trying to force everybody to do what you think is right. Do what you think is right and let me do what I think is right, as long as I'm not harming anyone and harming myself, which I'm not. But, well, I really, really appreciate this. You know, you've you obviously put a lot of time and effort and and uh, brain cells <laughs> into into focusing on this, researching it and really trying to dig deep and and find the truth and i really appreciate that and i hope that everyone else does too because not everybody has the time or inclination to but we all need this information it's really important so thank you so much thank you thank you so much jeremy hammond for your dedication to uncovering the truth you truly are an inspiration The podcast website is realjanine.com. And remember, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. And if you prefer video, you can go to YouTube and now to BitChute because YouTube is not uploading my videos anymore, my slideshows. Do you know someone who would enjoy this informative conversation with Jeremy Hammond? I'm sure you do. This is really important. This is very pertinent right now, and I, I would like everyone to get this information out far and wide. So thank you, uh, Jeremy Hammond. Please share with as many as possible. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well. Music.